Thank you all for tuning in for another episode of the Barbell Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scott. Today, we're talking all about trauma and how it affects your body, movement, lifestyle, and wellness. Today with me, we sat down with Dr. Sarah Vosi from Mind and Body PT in Wyndham, New Hampshire. She is considered a physical therapist, but also a trauma-informed practitioner. So she has a very unique practice and to me is just something that is something that's out there as an option for a lot of people. We see a lot of people every day that just have these issues that they don't have answers to. There's no scan that is finding the problem with them or no blood work that's finding the problem. Uh, and Sarah has a very unique practice where she takes a very holistic approach to things and she does things like visceral manipulation, which is looking at how the organs function to and how they play into your systemic health, maybe systemic swelling, inflammation, things like that. She also does craniosacral therapy, which is something of a unique practice within the physical therapy fields, as well as somato-emotional release therapy and neural system manipulation. So she does a lot of different things. She even works with food sensitivities and leaky gut. She works a lot with autoimmune disorders, concussions, and she'll tell a lot of stories in this episode about some crazy things she's done and treated and how it works. Now, I will say some of it sounds very woo-woo uh, and out there, but uh, for those of you out there that don't have answers to your health and wellness and something kind of crazy might be going on, uh, Sarah might be the answer for you. And it's just, uh, you know gives you potential hope that maybe there is some answer out there uh, that isn't a traditional, you know, CAT scan or MRI or blood work. Maybe there's something else we need to look into. Uh, and we dive into how trauma, and we see this all the time, of trauma isn't just affecting your emotional health or your mental health, but it does affect a lot of your physical health too. And uh, it affects your gut health and kind of can be this downward cascade of things that create different health issues down the line for people than when they don't deal with trauma the right way. So um, I hope you really like this episode. And again, this podcast is brought to you by Architect Fitness and Barbell Therapy, where we help athletes and active adults get better, move better, get more fit, get stronger, and get out of pain without injections, surgeries, or painkillers. Uh, our current specials right now for the gym and Architect Fitness, uh, if you sign up for a month, you get, or if you sign up for at least three months, you get a month free. And if you use the code BARBELLPT10, you'll receive 10% off your first evaluation if you've been thinking about coming in for physical therapy. So that is all. We will not hold you up any longer, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do enjoy this episode, please like, rate, share, and review uh, this podcast for us so we can hopefully get more guests just like you. And I will hold you up no more. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody, Dr. Sarah Vosi here. So uh, I've known Sarah for a long time, and um, we've talked a couple times about some different things, and you had me on one of your Facebook group talks. But Sarah is someone who has a very non-traditional approach from regular PT, traditional medicine, anything like that. So um, Sarah, I want to start with, is your PT practice anything like you thought it would be when you maybe first finished school? Um, it is nothing like I thought it was going to be when I first finished school. Um, I wanted to do sports medicine all the way, um, you know, sports orthopedics. So I am so far from that now. I never pictured myself ending up here. Yeah. And so uh, for those of you that don't know Sarah, she's the owner of Body and Mind PT in, are you in Wyndham? Yep, Wyndham, New Hampshire. Wyndham. Okay. So Sarah has a very different look at the body of she does some very different approaches that I haven't seen much of in the field that include, um, what are we looking at here? Visceral manipulation. So working on and looking at and assessing the organs of your body, uh, craniosacral therapy, somato-emotional release therapy, uh, neuro, neural manipulation, food sensitivity testing and leaky gut testing. Uh, and uh, I think you work with a lot of autoimmune type disorders as well. I do. Yep. So and I also do um, diagnostic ultrasound so I can um, take a peek what's going on inside as well. 
Okay, cool. So how did you end up getting into these different modalities and interventions as a physical therapist? Because I don't think anyone comes out thinking they're going to find a physical therapist that can treat their organs and what's going on there. Yeah, so that, you know, um, I've heard research called me search before and my own story and my own journey is what kind of led me into this. Um, I wanted to become a physical therapist initially from a car accident that I was in and it shattered my femur, so my thigh bone right at the knee joint. Um, and so that started me in treatment and physical therapy in high school. Um, went to college, just kept going with it. Um, and then when I was in my late 20s, and I was pregnant with my second child, I got really sick. I saw eight different specialists at MGH. Um, people were having a very hard time. The doctors were having a very hard time figuring out what was going on with me. And I ended up seeing um, a doctor of osteopathy in Woburn um, that did craniosacral therapy, and she coupled it with some emotion um, modalities, and also a naturopath who worked on some food issues with me, um, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. But um, when I saw the osteopath, it was very, very helpful. And I thought, well, this is something I can actually get trained in. Um, and it's helping me far more than anything the providers at MGH were helping with. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I got started. I went and took the training for craniosacral. And that was my, my journey down that path. And so for you now, so as you know, myself as a provider, Typically, what we're looking at uh, might be a little more than traditional PT, where we try to really dive deep into who a person truly is, what stresses are on their body, what the demands of maybe their physical activities are, uh, and how well certain things are moving and might not be moving, and possibly why. And I think that's typical of most you know physical therapists that are working in the outpatient sports type setting, but how are you looking at the body? So someone comes into you, they've had chronic pain, maybe some autoimmune disorders. Um, what questions are you asking this person off the bat and what types of things are you looking for? Um, so we do a full lifestyle um, kind of assessment. We ask about diet, hydration, and I think most PTs probably do some of this. Sleep, um, definitely movement, which all PTs should be doing if they have any mindfulness practices. But we kind of go through all of that, see where there's maybe some areas of weakness. Other things that I look for are um, what their position in their family of origin is. Are they an oldest child, an only child, the youngest child? Where do they fall among their siblings? Because um, that will tell you a lot about um, possibly their how they were treated growing up. Um, you know, oldest child tends to be parentified more than like the youngest child, something like that. Um, and then we also look at um, what's happening kind of in maybe the main part of the body here. So when we talk about visceral manipulation, there's two main components to it. One is um, how the organs are sliding and gliding over each other. So if you full, bend forward, um, your liver has to glide underneath your diaphragm. So you want to make sure that those tissues are mobile. And when we do visceral, we're not necessarily working on like the liver itself. We're working on the right triangular ligament, the left triangular ligament, the falciform ligament. So we're working on all the tissues that suspend and support the organs um, around them. So that's, so it's, it's still ligamentous. It's just ligaments for organs, not ligament bone to bone. Okay. And so when do you see things go wrong with these organs? Like what, what is happening to people typically that makes them become maybe dysfunctional and something that needs some, some tender, loving some care? Tender care? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a whole bunch of things that could happen. Um, one, it could, it could be positional, like typical physical therapy, looking at repetitive movements or lack thereof movement that we don't move enough. We are not moving in new and um, unique ways on a regular basis. You know, we're moving in a straight plane, so you're not getting movement in certain ligaments. Um, it could be um, food related. If you are constantly eating food that you have intolerances to or allergies to, and you're getting um inflammation in your gut all the time. So your small intestine is inflamed. You could have some irritation in the stomach lining. So now the organs are a little bit 
swollen. And so you know, they're not going to be able to move the way they should in their cavities. It could be because of that. Um, and then the biggest reason that I see is that it's an emotional component. So um, the big word that I use a lot is interoception. Um, have you heard that before, that word? I've heard it. Don't really know much about okay. it. So I'd love for you to talk more about it. So um, interoception is one of our senses, um, not the five ones that you know we learn about as a little kid. Um, the other ones we learn about in PT school are proprioception and vestibular. And then the third um, one of those is interoception. And interoception is our ability to sense the internal sensations of our body. Um, so we lose that over time as, you know, we get a stomach ache, but we have to go to work and we kind of just ignore and push through it. So we train our mind to not pay attention to the sensations in our body. And the work I do is really working on connecting the mind to those sensations again. Our emotions form from the sensations that we experience in our body. So those send signals up the vagus nerve to the brain that helps our emotions form. And then signals are sent back down the vagus nerve based on our threat response or lack thereof a threat response. Um, so a lot of times I work, the restrictions in the, in the body come from either ignoring the emotions, suppressing them, pretending like they don't exist, what, you know, whatever coping mechanism was effective in the moment um, usually becomes detrimental long-term if it's not addressed. Okay. So uh, question here. And if, it, if it doesn't make sense to you, just ask questions because sometimes it makes sense up here in my head and I have trouble getting it out. No, it, it makes sense to me. But okay. uh, so do you think a lot of these gut health type disorders, leaky gut, whatever, could truly have a start as something that happens in the brain as a coping mechanism for, you know, life stressors and, and emotions and traumas and whatnot? I do. I think there's a component of that. I don't think that's the whole thing. I don't ever want to put it on that. Um, a lot of people who have chronic health issues have been told, oh, it's just because of your mental health and kind of dismissed because of that. So I don't ever want to dismiss somebody because of that, because there usually is a physical component as well. And then when you come to the, the gut issues, you know, you can look at our food supply in America and how we treat our food. And there's an issue there too. So I don't think it's just, I think it's multifactorial. I don't think it's just one thing, but I do think um, that there is a big component of, of mental health, emotional regulation that, that plays into that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I, a lot of times relate things um, like sometimes if a person's had trauma and they're hyper I can't say this word, hypervigilant because of that. Vigilant? Vigilant? Vigil vigilant. Vigilant, thank you. Um, because of that, their immune system over time, if that's a long-term coping mechanism they've used, their immune system will become that way as well, and then they move into autoimmune. Um, if people have a lot of trouble with boundaries in their personal life, uh, forming and maintaining them, sometimes you have boundary issues in your gut, you have leaky gut. So it kind of correlates similarly in that way. Very interesting. And uh, for those that don't know about leaky gut, Sarah, how would you describe leaky gut syndrome? Um, so you have these, all your cells meet together inside your small intestines and you have junctions where those cells meet together and they're supposed to be tight junctions. Um, and over time, as things damage the inside lining of that, the cells kind of become, those junctions become looser. And so bigger molecules are able to get through and the body starts to recognize those as things that they need to attack. But those molecules actually uh, are very similar in size and makeup of some of our own tissues. And so then the body gets confused and then it ends up usually having like an autoimmune issue where you're attacking your body, not just the large molecules that are getting through. Mm -hmm. So Leaky gut is a very interesting topic all in and of itself because I've seen a lot on it for years. Like I've, I have had plenty of autoimmune issues myself. Um, I've had the gut issues. I had a parasitic infection for a while that I was dealing with and still kind of healing from, but there's plenty of people out there that say leaky gut isn't real and it's, you know, there's no science behind it and this and that, but it, it definitely seems more and more like we're coming to terms with the fact that like this is something that's happening i think in the past few years we're starting to see that like 
oh, all the, the, the gluten that we process in this country is actually negatively affecting our gut and we can't process it the way we could. Like I've heard of plenty of people that have like celiac disease going to Italy and eating all the gluten and being completely fine. So right. what are your thoughts on, on leaky gut as itself and, and where it kind of lands in the medical literature and how we treat it in this country and what patients so should keep in mind if they go to see a provider that tells them, no, that there's no such thing as leaky gut. Um, I think more and more providers, even in standard Western medicine, are becoming uh, open to the idea of leaky gut. I actually haven't had any providers tell me that they they don't believe in that. Even my providers at MGH, um, you know, the technical term would be you have increased gut permeability, um, and there are measures for it, uh, blood measures. So you can measure the level of zonulin um, through a blood test, which is a, a a marker that increases in the blood when those junctions become looser um, in, in the gut. There's a, uh, I'm going to say the other one wrong. I think it's occlusion. I can't remember the other term, but there are two different markers that they measure on blood tests um, to determine if there is a risk of leaky gut. And then you can see it. I believe that they can do biopsies on endoscopy um, to test for um, gut damage as well. So I, I don't think that it's you know, I think that some people might think it's a trend and it's like the popular thing right now and that it's not as, as big of a deal as it actually is. But I, I would say it's actually a pretty big deal. And if you look at like the gluten in the U.S. versus the gluten in, the, in Europe, um, I'm hopefully going to be able to have some gluten when I go to Europe this spring. We'll see. I'll try it because I do have celiac. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but, you know, the gluten in our country was modified. I believe it was genetically modified in this. I think. Um, and that's where that change has, has happened, I think. And also the amount of um, Roundup or glyphosate that we use on it mm -hmm. in this country. So that, that started to increase in the 80s. Um, in the early 80s, you know, it used to just be sprayed on the fields. And then in the early 80s, they used it as a drying agent during the harvesting. So like when it was on the conveyor belt, they douse it in um, glyphosate to dry all like the greenery off so it's easier to harvest and so that's um our generation my generation um as kids we got that and the generations before us didn't get that as kids so i think that's why you're seeing more gut issues now than you were before yeah uh there's definitely issues with the way we process food in this country and and what happens to us as a byproduct of that so uh someone comes into you what what types of symptoms and conditions might these people have? So my practice is primarily around chronic issues. Um, I might get your chronic back pain, neck pain, or headaches um, that like a typical physical therapist would. I also see people who have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I get a lot. I've seen patients for hiatal hernias, um, gastroesophageal reflux, um, gastroparesis. So any of those uh, digestive disorders that maybe aren't responding to traditional medicine. Um, I see a lot of a lot of people with those. Um, I see a lot of post concussion syndrome. And um, I see a lot of people with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And post traumatic so, stress disorder, just for those who aren't yeah. familiar with that. And so concussions is an interesting one, too, because uh, this is something I talked with a, my functional medicine doctor about, about how, you know, there's, and a lot of people know now about like the gut brain connection and how they're intertwined, but uh, concussion is an interesting one where my functional med doc was telling me that there are a lot of similarities between people that have different gut disorders, uh, infections of the gut, what have you, and people that have concussions, they end up having the same symptoms, yet there's a possibility that these issues started from a different event or a different onset of one being a head injury, one being a gut injury. So what types of things are you seeing uh, from the organs and, and function, you know, down below the brain that are affecting um, our digestion, our, you know, uptake of nutrients, everything else, our stress, what, what's happening there? And what do you do for these types of people that have these, these disorders? Because like, I just had a patient uh, that I was working with for a bit and um, I actually sent her your information too. So I don't know if she ever reached out, but she was like two years out from a concussion and having um, 
she had a lot of issues with cardiac where her heart rate was spiking in the middle of the night to like 130 beats a minute. Uh, it would sink and dive after exercise. Um, so she had this, you know, dysregulation of her heart, but are those different things you can treat as well? Yeah. So those are things that I'll commonly see in actually more in long COVID patients now, but, uh, they often present similar to post-concussion patients as well. Um, so that's just some autonomic regulation issues that the, the signals are not getting sent appropriately to the nervous system. Um, and with concussions, it's the, the brain and the gut are connected through the enteric nervous system. So the glial cells travel down your vagus nerve to the gut, and then they talk with the lining of the gut and the enteric nervous system in your gut, and then they travel back up to the brain again through the vagus nerve. So the it's a constant cycle. So the if the brain is dysfunctional and those glial cells are not communicating correctly, then you're going to have a brain injury can cause gut dysfunction and vice versa. Like if you have chronic SIBO and you might also be complaining of brain fog, similarly to a post-concussion, it can be because of that pathway. So that's why I think you have to address the food too, which is why I do food intolerance testing, but then also addressing the, um, the physical components too. So that's, I use a lot more craniosacral and neural manipulation when I'm working with um, concussion patients. And for those people that are just popping on or maybe not familiar. Both of those are gentle manual therapy techniques. Um, and I use them with graded imagery. So we do a lot of visualization of the structures that, that I'm working on. So how does that work? So you're using neural manipulation and craniosacral. So what are you trying to do to this person that might have a concussion and what is happening? So it- it depends on the patient. So this is the part that's usually a leap for other providers. Um, it is assessment. It's a palpation assessment. Um, and so, you know, many years of training and lots of practice, not instantaneous, um, but working on areas of tension inside the body. Um, so if I'm getting on someone's brain, I might have my hands right over their frontal lobe. So touching the skin and I am thinking and feeling at the layers as I go. So skin, adipose muscle, fascia, bone. Underneath the bone is you get your dura membrane. And as I do all of this, I am either using my 3D anatomy on my computer or I'm taking out my model or I'm getting out my Netter's anatomy book. And I'm teaching the patient about the anatomy as we go. And I usually have them look at the picture of the anatomy as I'm putting some sort of novel input, whether it's my hands or a needle for dry needling um, into that tissue. And And then we work on some visualization. So how does theirs look different from the picture in the book? If they were to close their eyes and they were to think about how they were going to draw theirs, would it look the same? Would it look different? And if it looks different, how does it look different? Is the dura matter, are the fibers crisscross instead of parallel? Is it thick and bumpy or is it too thin and... um, and almost porous. And if whichever way it is, we do some graded imagery and visualization work to kind of bring that back to kind of more what the textbook picture would look like. So it's a lot of, and that's the interoception piece. That's the piece of connecting their, their brain, their mind to the tissues in their body. So kind of regrowing those connections. And when that happens, patient symptoms often get a lot, a lot better. Um, and they'll have a lot less just because they've given attention and intention to those tissues that they, um, for whatever reason, have not been able to connect with. Last week, I actually had someone who um, got a concussion ski racing with me last winter um, at Pat's Peak, and she has been having significant issues since. And um, we worked on her optic nerve. So she's in vision therapy as well. I sent her to a neuro-ophthalmologist. And um, she, she actually was even struggling with vision therapy and coming here. And so we worked on visualizing her optic nerves coming to the optic chasm and then splitting back to the optic tract to the visual processing center in the occipital lobe. And while I'm working on the outside of her head and working on the tissues, she's working on the visualization and I'm guiding her through it. And afterwards, she was like, oh, my God, my headache's gone. And I feel like my eyes are working together for the first time in months. Um, so it's, it's really about getting 
when I started doing this work, I was doing a lot of it passive, just the manual part. But I have found that once you get the patient's brain involved and be, actually becomes more active for them with the um, graded imagery and visualizations and actually talking to the tissues, it sounds silly, but I'm like, pretend this tissue is a person and let's talk to it. And um, it works phenomenally. I have had such great results in the past um, probably nine months since I started doing that. And it's, it's actually kind of mind blowing every day I go home and I'm like, Oh my gosh, you don't know what happened today. It's just like little miracles all day long. Yeah. I will say it definitely sounds a little woo woo uh, or, or it probably sounds a little woo woo to a lot of people out there, but uh, you so, know, it's to me, it's like, well, I've had Reiki done with our friend Brogan and <clears throat> um, excuse me, the, you know, Brogan didn't think I'd be open to it, but uh, I, I think if you keep an open mind to anything, almost anything can work for you potentially. And uh, when I, I've done Reiki, it's a very different sensation, phenomena, whatever you want to call it. That's just, it definitely is doing something. And it's, these are things that have been around for thousands of years where with Reiki, like she doesn't even put her hands on you. They're just near you. But like, I have felt like, electric bolts like shooting from my feet up through my legs into my low back. Um, and then like you turn over and you know, the upper body was like, I was sitting in this ice cold bath with like no clothes on. And it's all that very interesting how that can work. And I think it's definitely something that um, it sounds a little crazy, but I think people need to keep an open mind to it of like what we're doing. And, and visualization is something too we know and have pretty well studied now at this point that visualization is huge for sports performance. Right. So why can't we use it as something uh, to, yeah, get our, our mind and our nervous system and everything back on track with itself. Right. So I don't, I don't actually love comparing it to Reiki. I, I also have enjoyed getting Reiki in the past, um, but Reiki is really, you're pulling from a, a an energy source, your, your, your conduit, and you're providing that energy to somebody else. I don't, so I have patients who would be very against that for religious purposes. Um, so I, I don't pull any energy from any other source. What I'm working on is really, it's really neuroscience. So really starting to create regulation in the nervous system and pockets where there has just been sustained dysregulation for long periods of time. So in physical therapy, we talk a lot about pain neuroscience has been like the buzz thing for the past, you know, decade or two. And I think pain neuroscience is great. I think that they ignore trauma neuroscience, though, when they talk about pain neuroscience. And I think it's important to recognize both. And I know they do a lot of graded imagery in pain neuroscience, and I think that, that's wonderful. Um, but, you know, pain neuroscience would say, you know, I think the, the famous story is, you know, the guy was walking through the the bush in Australia and the snake bit him. And then the next time, and he didn't feel any that much pain. And then the next time you walk through a stick hit his leg and he, you know, felt a great deal of pain. Um, and so that sometimes our brains can trick us. And so he would say, and this is kind of similar for what I do with PTSD people, he would say, Oh, you have to tell your brain that it was wrong and that it was, you know, that there isn't actually any danger. So he's addressing the second situation. So he's kind of pretending like the snake bite didn't happen. And he's saying, oh, it's not an issue now. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. I would say for trauma neuroscience, you have to go back and address the first instance where you had the snake bite and it became life-threatening. And you have to address the dysregulation that occurred in the nervous system at that time. And then you will stop having these other issues, these other things that come up where the where your nervous system is already in dysregulation, so it overreacts to something. So if you come down back to the first instance and treat that nervous system dysregulation that occurred from that, that um, experience, that you won't have these false things later on that then you have to basically kind of trick your brain into not um, reacting. So that's, that's kind of where I go with it. So it's really working on nervous system regulation. That's interesting. I actually send that video uh, from Laura Moore Mosley, his TED talk there. Um, to a lot of people, a lot of physical therapists do. And I think it, I think it's great. But um, when you work with people who have a history of trauma, there's there's two methods. There's top down and bottom up for recovery. And top down is using the mind to affect the body. So, you know, if you have like these thoughts like, oh, my God, this is going to be so bad. 
telling yourself it's not going to be so bad, what's the worst thing that could happen, and kind of tricking your mind. The bottom up works with the body and addresses the body to affect the mind. So we regulate the nervous system and the body, and as the body, the nervous system and the body becomes more regulated, then the mind calms, and you don't have the intrusive thoughts, you don't have the anxiety because the nervous system has moved into more regulation. And for people who have PTSD, often a combination of top-down and bottom-up combined is needed, that one by itself doesn't work, but you need both. And so I think pain neuroscience has its place. I just think that we also need to address the dysregulation that's happening in the body um, and go back to the root cause instead of kind of addressing in the peripheral stuff that happens afterwards. Okay, so in that situation, if you had someone that had a snake bite, And then every time they go in the woods, they think they're getting bit by a snake that might be a life-threatening injury again. How would, how would you work on that? Like, what what would your approach be? Um, So um, usually I don't go to a specific big T trauma. Um, We can, but I, I often sometimes remembering the trauma itself and having to relive it can be more traumatizing because it creates more nervous system dysregulation. Um, So it, if it's somebody, say, for instance, if it's somebody who has um, some chronic pelvic pain, because I see that a lot, whether it's they think it's hips, SI, um, kind of chronic pelvic pain, I will get on a tissue and we'll start working that tissue. They'll start talking to it. Um, you know, we've done the graded imagery. They see it looks different. And if that tissue isn't responding, if it's not changing, I will say, ask the, ask this, whatever. I think yesterday I was working on the arachis, which is a ligament that holds the bladder up. Um, and the patient, it wasn't changing. And I said to the patient, ask, uh, she said it looked like a um, bungee cord instead of like a, instead of like a scrunchie instead of long and straight. And so I said, ask it how long it's been there or what age you were when it developed. And she, and like, it's kind of more like a word association thing. It's just whatever comes to your mind first. It's because it, your mind is, is ruling this year. Um, and so she was like, I think it was when I was, when I was 14 and I was like, okay, at 14, can you visualize your 14 year old self? And she said, yes. And I said, can the you now, you that's on the table, the mom that I'm treating, can she interact with the 14 year old you in your vision? And what does she need? She needs a hug. She's collapsing into my arms, falling. She needs someone to just comfort her. And then that allows that piece, that nervous system that was dysregulated in that area of the tissue to move into regulation. And then it just relaxes. And she's like, oh, the ligament looks straight now in my visualization. I'm like, great. So it's it's really about um, when we don't have the tools on board to process whatever whatever happens to us in the moment, or if we feel very alone, in that moment of dysregulation, often we are never able to fully process it. And then that kind of lives in our tissues. So um, the body never lies um, by Alice. And I'm blanking on her last name or the body keeps the score by Vessel. Um, I'm blanking on his last name too. Um, but both of them um, talk a lot about that in their books about how our experiences that we aren't able to process show up in our body. And then treating the body allows them to process and then allows the nervous system in that area to move into regulation. So then you're not having symptoms anymore. Very, very interesting stuff. So do you think, and this probably isn't a, an all or never, but uh, do you think there's people out there? I feel like there's a lot of people now that are you know, getting diagnosed with some autoimmune disorder that they don't really know what it is yet, but something from an autoimmune perspective is going on and maybe they're being treated medically with medications and pharmaceutical drugs. But do you think there's you know, issues going on out there with people that are living this life thinking they have something wrong for, from a, you know, there's a genetic coding issue when really it's just trauma and issues that haven't been dealt with that someone like you could help them solve? I think that's a combination also. So I think, um, you know, if there's a genetic coding issue, it might be a genetic coding issue. And is that genetic coding issue because of epigenetic trauma and generational trauma? Or is that genetic coding issue because of something else? Like the biggest one I work with in here is um, the MTHFR gene mutation. 
um, which changes the way our body processes uh, folic acid. We can't convert B vitamins and folic acid into the body into the form it's needed for the body to process it. Um, and so that leads to a lot of mental health stress. So a lot of anxiety um, is often seen with that. So uh, getting people on the right supplements, uh, methylated B vitamin supplement is really the biggest thing um, will help with that. And that's you absolutely like you can't just think your way out of that. You're not going to change the fact that you have an MTHFR mutation just by thinking about it and dealing with trauma. That's always going to be there. So, you know, addressing that appropriately can help lower the anxiety. And then what that does to the nervous system, if you're, if you're not getting, if your brain needs these B vitamins to function and it doesn't have them in a form it needs, you're going to have this constant nervous system dysfunction. So that's going to take one piece away. Um, and then you may have some other emotional stuff that you may have to deal with or um, experiences that you may have to deal with to get to like a full state of calm. I honestly didn't know um, that life could be as relaxed and easy as it is now because I've had my own struggles with PTSD after the car accident I was in high school um, and anxiety and depression as well. I had postpartum depression after both of my kids. Um, so. Um, I've been down my own road with that. And if someone had, um, you know, I, the, the addressing the, the, the genetic component is absolutely imperative. I don't think that you can just discount that. Yeah. And so, cause we just, I see so many people that come in that they don't have a diagnosis, like a medical diagnosis, but there's definitely something systemically going on from maybe an inflammatory perspective. Right. They have all this stress and anxiety. And I think a lot of traditional medicine has just, you know, band-aided that with SSRI drugs and anxiety and depression meds. And um, there's a whole host of other things that people have too, like hormonal disorders or issues and things that we're just covering up with these band-aids. And it's just like, is there something else we could do to get to the root cause of this? And it sounds like you were someone there that could, could help people. Maybe we can't get rid of the genetic component to it, but there's a lot we can do to regulate our nervous system and how we, how our body is working to be more of an optimal manner. Absolutely. I, um, and I, I have to say, I'm not against SSRIs and medication. I, Absolutely. I don't think I'd be here if it weren't for them. I took them after both of my kids when I had postpartum depression. And quite literally, I don't think I'd be here if it weren't for SSRIs. So I think they're totally needed. For me, I just didn't want to be on them for my entire life. And that was my doctor's plan. Um, I think they were a great temporary solution. Um, and then I needed to do things in my life with um, lifestyle changes and addressing my own mental health and gut brain connection and everything else to really be able to move through that. And so I, I never tell people that I think they should get off their medication. If some, if that is somebody's goal, I'm happy to help them move towards that goal. Um, but, um, you know, we only see a small snapshot of a person's life in our office and we have no idea what they're actually dealing with on the outside. So I, you know, and how much mm -hmm. stress that is. So I, I don't ever usually, um, encourage patients to get off them and I'll help them if that's their goal, but that's kind of as far as I go with that. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about stress and trauma and how that affects our bodies and movement, because that's one thing, again, we see it all the time of people just come in and they're just this tight type A personality. Yeah. Uh, they just, they, even when you tell them to relax in a nice calm tone of voice, they still can't get themselves to relax. There's, there's like no sense of relaxation in them. And it's, it's like, okay, what, what is going on? And they can't breathe. It's like, I have to remind them, even when they're just laying there, you know, I could be doing like a hip mobilization where it's a pretty relaxing modality. And some of these people just like, can't let go of anything. It's like, you know, you start thinking about, well, what has this person dealt with that has put them in this state of just chronic stress and tension and you know, people come in and something we will discuss sometimes and um, ask some questions on, but uh, just so we have a better idea of, you know, what the prognosis might be. But I think for people out there, they need to hear a little bit more about how, 
um, our past experiences and traumas and everything else really affect um, our lifestyle, our movement quality, everything else. So can you touch on that a little bit, Sarah? Sure. So if, if you want someone to be able to relax, um, when they have that tension all the time, that's, I'm going to say it wrong again. It's like, I word, use this word all the time. I can't say it. Vigilance, hypervigilance. Vigilance. Vigilance. <laughs> Thank you. See, <laughs> hypervigilance. Yes, that's that. So there's the dyslexia. Um, but that's that, um, the nervous system dysregulation that they're constantly, they're constantly living in. And in order for them to really be able to relax, they need to create a safe environment internally. So that is a big focus of my practice is creating. So if someone comes in the first day, I never do any kind of trauma work with them because they have to develop, they have to have trust with me. They have to know that I am a safe person to talk to about this. And so there is a, there's a little bit of rapport that needs to be built to create that safety um, and have that trust. It, I am practiced at it now, so it, it happens a little bit faster for me now than it used to. Um, to create that safe environment for people to be able to be vulnerable, but they need to feel that they can be vulnerable. They need to feel safe and secure and stable enough that they can be vulnerable. Um, and and then once they're able to be like a little bit vulnerable and kind of go to those uncomfortable places that maybe they've been avoiding, that's when the relaxation will become more permanent and more sustained. Um, I had someone the other day who I've been seeing for a few months now, and I only see patients once every three weeks to once a month. Um, and, um, she, yesterday we've talked about it many times. My shoulders are always up in my ears. I feel like my shoulders are just up in my ears. And she finally was able, when we were talking to the tissues yesterday, she was like, Oh, this happened when I was 14. And it turns out, um, She's like, I've been like, they've been like this since I was 14. And it turns out that her parents divorced at 14. Um, so going back and providing her 14 year old self. So that's kind of, that's kind of deemed inner child work in the mental health world, but providing her 14 year old self with the love, emotional support, security, safety that it did, she didn't get at that time. Um, so that. She, and she was like, my shoulders just fell. Like, I don't, I'm not trying. Like, I'm not like telling my, like, they're just down now. And I'm like, yep, that's because that part of the nervous system dysregulation that you've been carrying with you for years has finally moved into a state of regulation. So now you're not having to have this coping mechanism of guarding all the time. So, you know, when we feel stress, we guard. And it's a way, and same thing, when we feel pain, we guard. It's, a, it's our body trying to protect us in some way. Um, so if you offer it and let it know that the danger is gone and you offer it safety and security, then it will naturally fall away. All that, that tension that we've been holding. If, oh, you know, as we move through life, we, we experience things and we just kind of push through. Um, but if you experience something and you are really tense when it happened and like you don't ever go back to reprocess it, that tension is always going to kind of be there a little bit. Um, it doesn't just go away. It's not like, oh, it's just disappeared now. That nervous system dysregulation lives on until you go back and process it really for the first time. Now, that's kind of my next question. So with the movement side of things, if we're looking at traditional orthopedics, it's like, okay, right. um, you know, we have a, a stiff hip and there's plenty of things we can do to make that mobile. But if we're not doing work on the back end between visits and, you know, you're doing maybe some mobility work, maybe some stability work to keep it mobile, that stiffness comes right back because you didn't learn how to deal with the new movement you were given. So is it similar on this like emotional level of dysregulation of, so you see these patients, they've been dealing with this for years and they didn't know what was going on. You get this person to get their shoulders to relax. How easy or hard is it for this person to jump back into the state of, you know, shoulders elevated again and being stressed? Like what, is it just gone until, you know, maybe some new event happens that's similar or? It can um, be. Um, it can be gone until a new event happens that might trigger it and it might be similar. Um, if it's a coping mechanism that they use in every aspect of stress, like they use it all the time, every time they feel stressed, it's going to come back. So that's where you know, still teaching the breathing techniques, doing the mindfulness, mindfulness te techniques is really um, helpful and beneficial with the work that I do. Um, 
And then I love, since I've added in the visualization and graded imagery, you know, I tell patients, you don't have to get as specific as I am. You know, I might be like in the medial wall of the right atrium, but like look at a picture of a heart online on Google. There's plenty of images. Close your eyes, put your hand over your heart, visualize the space under your hand. What do you sense? And it might not be as specific as it is when I'm working with them because we get really specific on exactly what tissues we're working on. Um, But they might get like an image. Oh, it feels like there's like a ball there and it feels kind of like bumpy and black. And then we work on with the visualization of that image that they're able to get so that they can have that carryover at home and practice. And all of that grows the interoception, the ability to sense the um, signals and changes um, from inter- from inside their body. And then as that interoception grows, it just becomes easier to process um, because you're not shutting it down all the time. You're allowing it. So is this kind of what we were talking about with the somato emotional release therapy? Is that what this is entailing? Yes. Yeah, so that's a lot of this. So I, um, somato emotion release is the, it's, um, through the Epilogy Institute, and that's the one I'm trained in. It kind of falls under somatic processing. So I tend to use that umbrella term a little bit more because I do some things outside of somatic motion release as well. Um, but somatic processing is um, kind of processing those sensations inside our body, tuning into them, growing that interoception um, so that we have a better nervous system regulation, less stress kind of in our daily lives. Yeah. So that, that falls into that. So there's sometimes people do have a huge emotional release while they're working through this stuff. And sometimes it's just like, oh, she just needed a hug. I feel better. And there's not some big emotional release with it. And that's fine too. It's wherever the patient um, is mentally and emotionally and whatever they need. Mm-hmm. And I guess what, what type, types of things would patients maybe experience on a regular basis that says, Hey, maybe this is a problem. Maybe they should come see someone like you. Yeah. So that's more, so chronic issues that aren't going away with the standard PT or Western medicine treatment. Um, and then repetitive issues that constantly come back. Um, those are the ones that I see the most. Okay. Uh, another big one I've seen recently too is thyroid disorders in people. So like my girlfriend is, um, someone, she just got diagnosed with Hashimoto syndrome or disease. And it's no, I don't think there's any coincidence that it happened when there's been a high state of stress, uh, in her life dealing with different things that she has to deal with in life. But, um, even sometimes like something will happen, you know, it, it could be something with dealing with different aspects, but like one ear will turn bright red. It could be that I, you know, didn't do the dishes <laughs> or forgot something or, um, you know, sometimes like she used to get these issues where like some stressful stimulus would be put upon her and like her skin would get all blotchy and break out in hives. So are these things that you'll typically see that um, other people yeah. are probably dealing with too? Yep. I can. Yes, I definitely see that type of stuff. Um, especially when there's the autoimmune component there, people will come in for that. You know, if someone's ear just turns red there, you don't usually come in to see me, but yes, with with the autoimmune as well. Um, a good majority of my patients have thyroid issues. Um, in the, in the book written by Baral, who's the founder of visceral manipulation, um, he correlates thyroid issues to issues with your mom or yourself as a mom, usually. Really? So, yeah. So that's, um, and then that leads always down a rabbit hole, which is interesting. I find so many times that people are dealing, so if they have children, um, that whatever age their children are, if their child's 14 or eight, that there's something that happened in their life at around that age that they didn't process. And then they get symptoms and they end up coming in. So I had someone come in recently with every time she turned her head to the right, she got dizzy and like a little off balance and then it was fine. And she had, you know, the Epley maneuver for BBBB and it didn't do anything. And so I was working with her and it came down to the fact that she, um, she was always surrounded by boys growing up and it didn't feel safe for her to be girly and play with dolls and play with Barbies. 
and her daughter was the age that she was when she kind of felt that. And so it was interesting to kind of walk her through that and try and help her feel safe enough to be like her girly self um, and, and allow that part of her to come forward without being scared that she'd be rejected if that, if that was, you know, what she presented with. Mm-hmm. We all need to, you know, we're, we're social creatures, humans. So we all have this drive to need to fit in and to be accepted. Um, and sometimes that leads us to kind of shut down or abandon part of ourself. Um, and then, you know, while it might not, it doesn't result in symptoms when you're eight years old, usually, but you keep that suppressed, you know, for 45 years and and you have a kid who's eight, who's allowed to be girly and mm-hmm. you know that kind of resurfaces. Interesting stuff. So yeah. uh, on the, the piece with <clears throat> thyroid there too, we see a lot of people now that have thyroid disorders. So, I mean, the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the thyroid gland is part of like the adrenal cortex. Yeah. Adrenal system. So yeah. <clears throat> do you think anything, any of that has to do with just how high of a stressful lifestyle we all live now that's very different from <clears throat> what it used to be years ago and yeah. do, do you think there's ways to maybe prevent some of these thyroid disorders from happening um I, it's like we're, we're just pumping thyroid hormone all day to keep up with yeah i the take thyroid hormone every day every morning when i wake up yeah okay. i have hypothyroid as well so I do think that if we can, I, you know, schools now are much bigger on social emotional learning than they were when I was growing up. And I think as the generations that have had social emotional learning from early childhood, like my kids know what the amygdala is, not because I taught them, but because they learned at school. Um, so, you know, as, as I think that generation grows up, I'm hoping that we'll see less of this uh, stress but we'll, we'll have to see, but I don't think that, you know, can, you know, once the cellular changes have occurred, they're harder to reverse. Um, and that's why you take thyroid for the rest of your life. Like I probably will. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think if you can get them before the stress levels under control before the cellular changes occur, then you have a higher, higher likelihood that, that you won't have all of these issues. Um, so I think that social emotional learning piece is, is so huge and, and very needed. And I'm glad to see that at least that the public school my kids are in are, are doing it every week. That's really cool. Um, I didn't know they were really doing that in schools yet, but definitely a piece of, I, I have seen more of a push of getting kids incensed with, uh, being more in touch with their body. Like right. my girlfriend's daughter, um, they do a lot of things on like working on their growth mindset and um, you know, yeah. Coping with different types of stressors and things in life, which, and she has learned a little bit about the brain in different areas of it. And she'll come home and be like, Oh, I learned about all these different things today. So it could be kind of cool to hear her tell me about, you know, different parts of the brain and digestion and everything else too, which I don't remember really getting much of when I was in school. I think it's in, it's interesting how generations change. You know, I think our generation, I think you might be a little bit younger than me, um, but our generation was kind of the, you just make it work. It doesn't matter what you need to do. You need to make it work. Um, so if you have to work harder, if you have to like stay up all night. And so we were at least, maybe that's my, just my family of origin, but I was taught to just push through all the time. Um, and I know many people my age, I'm 40, that, uh, especially moms that were taught the same. So I, I think that as, you know, every generation tries to fix what was wrong in that one for the next one. So I'm sure we'll do something different, different that will be wrong, but, you know, we're trying to give our kids the accommodations that they need so that they, um, can be successful without having to kill themselves to, to get there. And, um, so I, I, I'm hopeful that that will, you'll see maybe a little bit of a change there and, and maybe some decline um, as a generation grows up. But yeah. Yeah. My, my parents' favorite word growing up was suck it up or favorite right. phrase. Suck it up, so. buttercup. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard that. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. So there's 
probably lots of things I've learned over time that maybe not be the best coping strategies for things. Right. As I think a lot of us have, but we just don't. A lot of people haven't been told these things yet either that like, hey, some of these past things are coming back and this is what you're dealing with now. And we have to be mindful of like going back and processing some of these things and um, facing them in some type of way. And granted, I'm not the person to do that with them, but uh, you know, for a lot of people that have, you know, high levels of stress anxiety and they have, you know, thoracic, you know, upper back pain or neck pain, we need to address your breathing. I need you to do some type of mindfulness or meditation type practice and learn to control those things. And people are like, I thought you were just going to, you know, rub me down and give me some exercises and, you know, tell me how to warm up better in the gym. It's like, well, yeah, maybe that would help too, but we can't treat this if you're just in this state. So, so for people that don't know, a lot of people that have anxiety uh, or just are very highly stressed all the time they sit in the state of this like hyperventilated state where the ribs aren't moving uh, because we're not getting a full inhale and exhale out of our lungs. And so we could do all the manipulation of soft tissue and and mobilization of joints in the world. But, you know, one of my mentors are said, if if we're doing this, we're banging our finger on our head and that hurts and we don't stop doing that and change it, it's going to come right back. So if we just do this, let you walk out the door and don't, don't address some of these other underlying problems with it, we might be a little more stuck for a little bit longer of a period of time. So it's just interesting to see when patients come in with all these things. And I tell them something very unexpected from what they uh, were expecting. Um, But usually we're able to work through it. But uh, Sarah, is there anything else you have for us today? It's been pretty interesting getting through all this stuff and talking through some of these things. And I think Um, it's definitely eye-opening to patients, but anything else you wanted to put out on the table for us? I, I can't think of anything. Okay. I was actually wondering, um, just for myself as a provider, how did you as a PT get into food sensitivity testing and, and leaky gut testing? You mean who do I use or like so what lab or? Is that something you you use like a third party to do or how do you, or is that something yep. you provide like so, in your office? Um, so it's a blood spot testing. So it's a finger prick. So it's not a lab draw. Um, and it's a kit. So you get the kit, um, you do the finger prick. I either the patient can take the kit home and do it if they want to, or if they want, I can do it in the office for them. Um, but blood spots on a card, I think it's five blood spots, um, from a finger prick, you have to fill the circle and then you send it in and they, they test it and send the results back. Okay. And so from there, do you, so do you use this with all your patients too, or is this something you'll nope. use sparingly? Uh, no, it's not, it's, it's not cheap. So it, you know, it has to be some, it, and not everyone needs it. So it's definitely not something that I use with all my patients, but if a patient is having, you know, a, if patients having persistent post-concussion syndrome with brain fog issues and we can't figure, you know, they're not responding to treatment and usually they've seen standard PT before they see me. Um, so, you know, they're not responding, nothing's getting better, then we'll definitely test for food intolerances or food sensitivities. Um, and sometimes that is the missing piece. And then once they take those foods out that are causing either, um, an innate or, and acquired immune reaction in the body, um, when you take that away, then that systemic inflammation decreases and then the brain's able to function easier. Mm. So, um, not everyone, but I do find it very useful. Okay. I, I guess I'm not done. I have a few more questions. Now. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, with concussions, what are some of the big food sensitivities you find? Cause I've had a couple people and like, just based on my own personal experience um, and what I've been told and read up on is like gluten, dairy, and eggs are like the three yeah. big inflammatory triggers for people. So most of my concussion patients now that we'll see, I will have them eliminate those things and four out of five times symptoms start improving just from that alone. Yep. So those are definitely the big three, especially gluten is a big one. Dairy is also big. Egg is huge. And people don't really realize that because the white of the egg has antibodies in it that protect the yolk. So if you introducing these foreign antibodies into your body, into your system every day, it can definitely affect, affect that gut brain connection there and and create some inflammation because your body's like, what do we do with these? Where do these come from? Um, but I find, you know, it, it, that's why I like the testing though, because somebody had bananas the other day and I, as a level four, which is the highest level, like lots of 
um, acquired immunity reaction to it. And I was like, oh, I'm, that's surprising. I would have never guessed bananas. Never in my life would I have been like, I think it's bananas. <laughs> um, so it's I, that's why I really like the testing because it just um, gives you a bunch of common foods that you can you can take out if, if they're aggravating you. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize what foods they're actually sensitive to. Like some can give us like some bloating and and you know digestive type issues, but there's a whole lot of physiology that goes on too that I think yeah, with food sensitivities too, we don't always see them until maybe two to three days later. Right. So so it's you, not like a food might. allergy where it's like, oh, I ate, you know, an almond or a peanut and, and my I'm lips swelling. swell. It's three right. days later of like, you can't really be able to correlate that easily with yourself of like, what different things did I eat three days ago or two days ago, or maybe even a day ago. Um, to find that. So uh, it's very interesting that you do that, but I'd like to, if yeah, you could send me the- An allergy is an IgE antibody response and an, an, a sensitivity is, an, well, an acquired one is an IgG antibody response. So different antibodies, different responses. One is low level systemic inflammation. So it might take a few days for you to notice the symptoms. And the other one is obviously the immediate anaphylactic, hives, throat swollen, angioedema. Yeah. I don't know why we don't do more food sensitivity testing. I just had a patient that was being treated for RA or rheumatoid arthritis. And like she was on either Humira or Enbrel. And she just, she didn't have all the common sides. Like something wasn't adding up. Like she was having this chronic pains, pains. She didn't really have like the flares all that bad, but just chronically fatigued, brain fog, mm-hmm. couldn't think straight, um, should have joint pain, but it wasn't in all the joints you would expect with RA. And I was like, you know what? You need to go see the functional med doc. And and she went to see one and it turned out she just had an egg allergy. And, right. you know, this girl has been on these meds for a couple of years now. Strong meds, yeah. Yeah, very strong meds, like immunosuppressants. That, like, you know, even during COVID, it's like, should I be taking these? Because, like, this, you know, we don't know what it's doing back in 2020. But um, right. it's like, why didn't anyone just look at these things before? Why do we just slap these these medications at people and say, yeah, you have rheumatoid arthritis? Like, no, we have an egg allergy, and now she's off all the medications. She's living a perfectly normal life, back to normal. Like. Doesn't need PT all the time. Doesn't need any of these other things because it was just something systemically underlying that she was eating on a daily basis and had no idea that she had a sensitivity to it. Right. And it's just so. What is what is the company you use, use to do it? Uh, KBMO um, is the okay. company, and I liked them because some of them, like if you do what I think it's Everly Well online. They just measure IgG antibody responses. So if you eat something every day, it's likely to come up positive just because you have repeated exposures to it. Um, but the one I use requ- uh, measures the IgG antibody response and also something called the C3D pathway. So it measures not just um, innate immunity, it measures acquired immunity to the foods as well. So you get less false positives with that one. And it also measures the zonulin, the occlusion, and it measures for candida as well. So you get a, an idea if you have some um, overgrowth of candida, if you have um, some signs of leaky gut, and then also the food sensitivities. Interesting. So uh, when when do you decide to use some of these food sensitivity tests? Like what is someone dealing with that you're like, you know what, let's do a food sensitivity test? Um, I see a lot of patients with SIBO that have done like series of treatments without relief. And so a lot, I will always recommend it for that and say, well, let's see if, you know, that bad bacteria is just constantly overgrowing because your gut is constantly inflamed. Um, post-concussion syndrome is a big one. And then if they have chronic pain, that's not improving the way we thought it would, I will often go to food sensitivities to see if there's some underlying systemic inflammation from that. Is that, do you see a, a lot of food sensitivities too, with like low back pain and things? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. 
I find that low back pain has a lot of correlation to the mesentery, which is the root of the small intestine. So I treat that a lot with low back pain. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, we do got to wrap up here, but uh, where can people find you? Um, on my website is bodyandmindpt.com. And then I'm on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. But I'm in Wyndham, New Hampshire, if people want to come see me in person. All right. And we'll include all that in the show notes here too. So again, thank you for coming on. And I think I got to still, I've been meaning to come in and see you for all my stuff that I've been dealing with and see what improvements we can get. better book now because I'm booking for June. (laughs) Yeah, I I know. I got (laughs) to, I don't even know. I I got my whole schedule. It's like every weekend is something. We got meets, competitions, business conferences and everything else. So it's like, I got to try to figure out time for myself too, because take care of yourself so you can keep taking care of your patients though. Yeah, I know I'm doing my best over here, but I will, uh, I'll, I'll fill out my form sometime soon because I want to come in because I'm just curious, but, uh, how it all works myself just out of my own curiosity, but also to help some of the things I've dealt with. So again, thank you for coming on and thanks for uh, having me. No problem. And for our listeners, I have no idea who I have as my next guest coming on, but, um, I'm sure it will be an interesting show. So thanks for listening.